Welcome to the Voices of Australia podcast, hosted by me, Anthea Hancox, and Lydia Tessima, where the concept and reality of social cohesion is deeply explored. This podcast is brought to you by the Scanlon Foundation Research Institute. Each fortnight, we bring to you an interesting guest who present a new and often unexplained perspective of Australia. We acknowledge the traditional owners of the land from which we are recording the podcast, the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nations, and in the spirit of reconciliation, we pay our respect to all First Nations people. Hello, everyone, and, uh, and welcome again to another episode of Voices of Australia. Today, we're going to talk about what role does sport play in fostering social cohesion. And joining us in this episode is Olympic superstar Peter Boll to share his journey of moving to Australia, running in an Olympic final and becoming the fastest Australian 800-metre athlete in history. Welcome, Peter. Peter Boll was born in Khartoum to a Sudanese mother and Sudanese father, South Sudanese father. After travelling through Egypt at the age of four, Peter and his family first arrived in Toowoomba when he was eight, before finally settling in Perth. Peter captured the hearts of Australia in the Tokyo Olympics by finishing fourth in the men's 800 metre final, where he was watched by over two and a half million people and produced the best result by an Australian male in an individual track event since 1988. It is not a surprise then that this was the most watched event of the Tokyo Olympics. Ranked 19th going into Tokyo, Peter set the national record in his heat and then won his semi-final in another national record time. This year, Peter won his third consecutive national 800 metre title and became the first ever Australian to qualify for a world championship final in the 800 metres. And of course, most recently, Peter won silver at the Birmingham Olympic Games. On and off the track, Peter is an extraordinary athlete, an accomplished public speaker and has recently taken on the role of ambassador for the community organisation Youth Activating Youth. Peter, we're absolutely delighted to have you with us. Yes, hello Peter. Thank you for <laughs> being here with us today. This is Thank so you for exciting. having me. Um, no, I'm really excited for this. So it's really nice. And thanks for the introduction. Beautiful. <laughs> yeah, how do you feel about the bio? Is that an accurate <laughs> representation <laughs> yeah, of your greatness? Right. <laughs> <laughs> I, was, I was just listening and I was like, wow, like, there's been a long journey, especially for the last two years, you know. Um, most of those things in the bio happened in the last two years, so... I think it'd be be quite interesting to to dive deep into years before that, getting into those two years of the achievements because there's a lot. Well, that's that's what we really like to kick off and and really learn a little bit more about how did you get into athletics and and tell us the role that basketball played in your life in the process of getting into athletics. Mind you, I'll just say, when I read (laughs) basketball, I was like, but guys, we, we got it wrong. He did athletics and they're like, no, 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 he did the whole basketball thing before that. So I'm excited to learn more about you right now. Yeah. Um, I mean, in simple terms, I think sports, sports always played a major role um, in my life, especially having four brothers, super competitive. We played every single sports, you know, from soccer to boxing. Uh, but interestingly enough, I went to school on a basketball scholarship, which I don't think many people know. No. And I was, I'm just super competitive and I always wanted to play more game. I wanted to be better at basketball. And, and just like when I moved to Australia, like a few, like in first time I moved to Australia and I and understood that um, English is the foundation to every single class that you had to go to. You had to be able to speak English. I understood that, um, uh, I guess, endurance, speed, um, they were like your basic foundations to every sport. So 
Um, and, you know, I went to school called St. Nobles College up in Western Australia and running was compulsory, like swimming carnival was compulsory. Um, Cross country was compulsory yeah. unless you had a letter or you were sick or something. Like yeah. that. And, um, and I somehow I always had a letter for swimming, but never for <laughs> the track events. Um, and, uh, That's I was, hilarious. <laughs> Uh, I was, Can I, I ask was what was the reason? What was the what justification? Was the problem with swimming? Yeah, <laughs> uh, it's just it was never in our culture. Like, if, you grow, if, you, if you grow up, if you grow up in Australia, you you get chucked in the pool when you're two years old. Mm-hmm. Um, if you grow up in Sudan in Africa, like there's no swimming lessons and whatnot, so it's very uncomfortable. Especially, I, I think one thing is to compete, another thing is to learn. Like, mm-hmm. I mean, learning is a different thing, but put you in competition with a different yeah. people. It was just, you know, you're just a bit embarrassed, a bit shy. Yeah, so um, basketball. Yeah. Basketball was the thing, was it? That was that yeah, took bas- you forward. Basketball, right? basketball did take me forward, and and um and I was in school for a scholarship, so it helped it helped pay my fees as well for school. Which was um I think it was a pretty expensive school, but you don't really notice because your parents are doing um the payments. So I think that made a difference, and yeah, and I did school sports, especially cross country, and I was winning them. And one of my teachers said, Pete, I think you should do it outside of school. And I said, no way. Like, I mean, <laughs> back where I come from, like running is not really a sport. We just do it for fun. Mm. And I'd rather be in a team environment. Um, until I guess my competitive nature came and I was, I won school cross country. I won school events. And then you go into, into school, versus other schools. And there's like over 200 to 400 students. And I was coming, I came second two years in a row and I was like, to my teacher, the same teacher, I came to her a year or two years later. I was like, why does that kid keep beating me? You know? <laughs> and, um, and she said, well, well, he does something called training. <laughs> That's hilarious. <laughs> and at that point I was just like, well, um, I'll give it a try. And I'll credit to her. She, she knew I didn't know where to go in any direction. So she, she got me into um, a team, found me a coach. Um, and she also got her dad involved who was mentoring me through it all. And from there on, I just fell in love with it, you know, entertaining the idea of being the fastest in the school. I ticked that off. Wanted to be the fastest out of every school in Western Australia. I ticked that off. And then I wanted to be the fastest in the state. And then when I ticked that off, I wanted to be the fastest in the country. And then before you know it, you're, you're competing to be the best in the world, which is what Tokyo Olympics was. So, you know, it's just in every year you're entertaining a different thing. And um, it only took me about four to five years to make the Olympics, which is, which I think Phenomenal. I didn't think much of it back then. Um, no, but, that's yeah, amazing. My first international team was the Olympics, which is which is crazy if you think about it. It's like going from primary school straight to year 12 or something like that. Yeah. You know, I had no experience and, you know, there's some good stories that we get into later, but I guess that's the story, yeah. Brilliant. Yeah, so, I mean, that's – so you mentioned basketball and, it, like, but it's by the sounds of it, it's – athletics or it's running that ended up driving you forward but what was where was that decision to leave basketball behind I didn't quite capture when you um that's a good question I think it's it's a combination of I, I used to get a few injuries knee injuries and then the reason I actually really moved to athletics is because I wanted to travel the world and you've you know when I first did then um I guess a state competition and I had to go to Sydney I was like man all I have to do is run a little bit faster to keep going to different states and whatnot mm. you know get off the track after two minutes and then explore um the city and in 2015 when i went to paris i was like and i met family members that i didn't <laughs> see since i was little i was like all i have to do is come back and train a little bit harder to come back to paris again like um i think that's that's what drove me towards athletics it was like 
um, everything around them, not athletics itself, because to be honest, I found athletics really boring. Um, <laughs> and then when I first started, there was little athletics uh, and I think I won a race state title, but I got disqualified because I never rocked up to other races. You needed to rock up to other races to qualify. But I used to, I used to run home and not be there because I didn't want to be there. It was just, I was like, no, nah, this is boring. I used to run home and just pick up my basketball and play instead. So I just found athletics was too individual and basketball was like your friends. So I really enjoyed that. Mm-hmm. But then when I realized you can travel the world and, you know, explore different cultures and understand them all a little bit more, athletics started winning a little bit more, yeah. It's, it's really interesting actually to think about the goals that you set yourself and why you set them. Mm. Uh, and I'm wondering whether or not you've, how, how important and how difficult is it to actually set those sorts of goals when you're young and living in a relatively new country? Um, they're pretty difficult. And I think the most difficult part is, um, I think the complications or I think there's a gap in the middle where, where like, obviously uh, I was born in Sudan, lived in Egypt and then moved to Australia. Like, um, and the good thing is like, we went to school, I went to school, primary school and, you know, get to understand Australian cultures. But at home, your parents don't really go to school. Um, they come to Australia, but all their families, Sudanese, mm-hmm. um, in the same culture so i think there's a bit of a gap there where like there's this conflict like like for us it was like education not sports like they want to push you towards education like there's no such thing as arts and yeah and creativity it was like education like math english that's what mattered uh a sport was like you play it for fun but it wasn't really a career because it's a bit too risky so there was a so there was a bit of that um in that but that's what i want to explore is how did you because um, I'm already envisioning that gap that would have existed in terms of your parents' understanding or appreciation for what you were doing. But how? what was that process of them? Because I'm sure your parents are fully on board now. Um, of Like you being this, sport, um, this sportsman person, like they're probably fully on board. Um, but what did it take for them to, you know, respect it as a sport and respect y- your craft and you as a professional? I think credit to them, the my dad always took me to basketball games took me to sport his only thing was like if, if you're gonna do it you have to do it properly um but i guess what it took was to to balance it in the middle like of course you have your own goals and stuff like that but you also gotta understand your parents like they're never against you so they might be wrong but like they mean well for you and they're mm-hmm. and they're like they want the best for you and I understood that pretty early so i was like why don't we balance it in the middle there's no reason why i couldn't study and do sport at the same time if if i studied stayed out of trouble at school and played basketball like they'll be off your case it's just, <laughs> That's true. It's just the other side like um you know i think it's important that we we learn how to balance things anyway like it's not it's not all about sports is of course it's your passion but there's other aspects that actually help you be, become a better at sports like your family for instance like you gotta you gotta like define your values really early your family is important your education is important whatever that is and your school is important especially especially if your parents are paying for school and even if you don't see it you just gotta get through it and um and that's what i did i just did both and balanced them really well and yeah got them off my case i agree <laughs> i agree that pursuing your passion doesn't have to be at the expense of you know th- really important things such as education and stuff like that um 
what about how sport has sport been a vehicle for you to I guess connect to the broader Australian society more like how has sport played a role in you connecting to the Australian culture or understanding it and then extending that to your family and your community uh, the first thing is language barrier so um, sports like a universal language so when you first come here and like you're a bit shy to go into an English class math class you're never shy to go into a sports class because generally the, the rules are universal and you're easy to make friends so sport did do that pretty well and then I guess you also, at, I guess that's later on when you're running for your country, when you're running for Australia, you obviously now you're drawing the attention. And that's why I think Tokyo was a major success because you're drawing so much attention from the Australian community, the people that were born here, the first people here, and then you're also drawing a lot of attention from uh, migrants and people that come here to make a better living. So you've got like, you literally got everyone around you. And and then at that moment, you can't say like, um, I'm just for the Sudanese community, can't just say I'm just for Australian people. You just better off being like a global citizen. And, and like, I guess our cultures and where we come from shouldn't divide us. They should actually bring us together. And and I think that was really important. And I understood that really early because my mom, my mom is South Sudanese and my dad is North um, no, no, my mom is actually not Sudanese, my dad is actually, <laughs> so I understood that really early because there's always conflicts back home and I was like, well, there shouldn't be conflicts back here, we should, uh, and we should all just be, be like one. And I think what, during the interview after Tokyo was like, um, the, uh, the South Sudanese must be proud. And I said, yeah, but like everyone should be proud because, um, like, especially from my experience traveling the world, it was like, I have friends in, a friend from Luxembourg that was all over and cheering for me. I have a friend from, from Paris. I have a friend from South Africa. Um, and those guys weren't even Australian citizens that were cheering for you. So there was, there was no need just to like, I guess, separate anyone and just like, just, I guess, thank everyone as, as one. Yeah. So, so Peter, a lot of young people, um, uh, it's really struggle with their sense of identity when they move to a new country. And, um, and I'm, but it doesn't seem to have been something that you're currently talking about as, as a challenge for you. Did you find that sport helped you to figure out what your identity was uh, or is that is it still something that is uh, in the back of your mind? Um, it's, it's, I think it's struggling is okay because like you come into a new country and you're confused and, and there's differences and, and through struggle you kind of learn to grow anyway. So I've definitely struggled through it a bit i struggled through it just with my own my own family I have um my mom and dad from different places and, and they speak different languages and whenever i go to my dad's side they're like why can't you speak your dad's language or whenever i go to my mom's side like why so those struggles are always early i think but the key was always just to be confident in yourself enough to be like well this, this is who i am and and once you can do that then everything else is, is like irrelevant did, did your confidence come from achievement or what, what advice would you give to young people that are struggling with identity, perhaps don't feel like they're achieving their 800-metre, um, you know, national records and things like that? How do they find the confidence that you found through athletics? Well, that would be unrealistic to tell them you have to achieve to that extent to find identity. Yeah. Um, and I honestly think um, my achievement in sport was the opposite way. I think it came from finding my identity first and mm -hmm. and being confident in myself. And that's when I was better at sports, not the other way around. Not that's sport first. Yeah, that's really great. Yeah. Because sport 
if in in like the most simple terms like sport will end eventually we don't know when wouldn't like you could get injured like you know you don't want that but sport can end at any time but you as a person you know you remain and and that's more important than than the sport itself that's so, true yeah and yeah, I, think that's important. I agree in terms of like belonging and you know being self-assured and having a confidence really does eliminate a lot of the issues that come with like belonging because often it's people projecting onto you what you should be like or what you sh- you know what you should represent in that given like space or context but um, it seems like from your experience you showing up as someone who is self-assured and someone who's confident um, you often receive that way it's like that whole thing of telling people how to treat you, you, <laughs> tell you sort of thing um, mm. would, but I also agree that it's really important and it's worthwhile to be sure about your sense of identity and who you are before going into spaces and trying to achieve like really great things um, well you must still you must still find yourself going into situations where you don't feel particularly comfortable. Um, and and have to sort of dig deep in order to to be able to get through those particular events. Is that right? Are, are there times when you've you know, especially going through the whole Olympics process or um, any of those things, have you found yourself in situations where you've really needed to dig deep? Yeah, always, especially more so now because um, I guess with all the attention from the last two years, now I'm in different rooms, um, different meetings. Uh, access to so many different people and you know the thing is uh, I realized pretty early with all that attention and stuff like that the most important thing is is to define what you stand for and because you get, you're going to get so many different opportunities mm-hmm. um, that might not align with your values that might not align with your community um, and if you can define your values really early and what you stand for and regardless of how much money gets chucked into you or regardless of what the opportunity is to get ahead, um, you always stay true to yourself and that keeps you kind of kind of happy. So I keep that at a guideline. But, yeah, I'm always in, I guess, more so. I'll probably try my best not even to put myself in those situations first. You can you, – you, you have to have – like, you're not superhuman. You have to have you have to have shelters around you and you have to have people around you. And I have – I have a set of people around me that, like, if any request comes that I'm that I'm gonna feel uncomfortable with, that we're not even gonna entertain. We're not even gonna put ourselves in that in that room. That's like that's like number one, eliminated at all costs. But then I think if you're there in those situations, you have to speak up. You can't stay silent. And like, for instance, if if like if it's like a racist comment or something like that, you gotta stand up. You can't just stay there silent because because now you have a responsibility to stand up for, for your community and for people around you and for what you stand for. But most importantly, not at the, not at the cost or the expense of your own happiness. You can only take what you, what you can. And I say that because I remember a few years ago, I was in, I was in Belgium. I was staying in Belgium. I chose different cities to base myself in and, and I wanted to learn. I was like, why is there so many Africans in Belgium? (laughs) And and I, I, of course I knew like the Congo, the colonizations and all that stuff, but I wanted to read deep into it. And I picked a book, it's called Blood River. And I was reading, I was reading on it and um, like, and it was a rough read. And -hmm. and, like, I remember I was reading it and I was just not happy and like sad and everything. I was like, well, put it down. Like maybe your growth is not yet to that stage to be able to handle those. And to be honest, the only way you can change the world, if you can change yourself and you're, and you're like, and you're in a good place. Mm. When something puts you in a bad place, put it down until you can grow to be able to handle it. Like if a conversation is too deep to handle and it's going to affect you, your mental health and 
it, and your well-being comes first. Yeah. Like that's how you do it. Um, and you just slowly, slowly. And the only way is it's just through sports like me running 800 meters and becoming faster every year. Um, so there's conversations and getting into uncomfortable situations like like small, small and small bits. Like don't put yourself into something so big that you can't handle. It's, yeah, it sounds like, you know, communication and self-awareness are two really big <laughs> key words in, in the conversation of just being your best self and putting your best foot forward. Um, you know, like our first episode with Huss, Dr. Huss Dalal, um, he mentioned the importance um, of, of like communication, being able to express um, your desires and what you want in a space and just being able to express yourself. And what you don't want. And what you don't want, exactly. Mm. I think now's a great time to probably transition into social cohesion and like... Absolutely. You know, what does social cohesion um, and inclusion and belonging mean to you? And especially when you consider Australia, what does a socially cohesive Australia look like? I, I think anything that considers the well-being of all groups, because Australia is so multicultural. So when you talk about social cohesion, I think it's going to include every single member. Because um, we just... And because everyone comes from everywhere, the goal should be to create a sense of belonging for all different communities without... without without the expense of leaving the culture behind. Mm-hmm. I think the goal has always been for me to, we've come to a new country to embrace the Australian culture, but never to forget where you come from. Because that gives you so much, that gives you so much sense of belonging, so much power, so much inspiration is important, but to embrace where, you, where the new land is. So sense of belonging is really, really important. And then I guess anything that, like you just got to promote some, some sort of trust. People, people are usually, like if I can trust you, then like I can sleep better at night. You know, if like without trust, there's a lot of worry. Um, without sense of belonging, it's hard, especially for young kids. If they don't feel like they belong, um, it's just hard. And we see it all the time in Melbourne. I think there's a lot of people that don't feel like they belong in certain places. And 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 like I think we need to create something for them that where where they feel like they belong, and and more importantly, that they contribute and they understood. So I think that's important, yeah. So, so from what you said earlier, and I'm I'm guessing that that what you think is is that certainly participating in sport helps to build that sense of belonging. Yeah, but um, and before that, I think the opportunity to participate in sports, mm. um, like opportunity, should be across all members, not not just the rich and the wealthy, not just the ones that go to private schools, and like there should be sports programs for for Everybody. people that go to public schools and. Um, and all that stuff. I think there's great foundations that run stuff like that. There's a great foundation in Queensland that I did work with them and they're called Pushing Barriers. And what they do is um, all the migrants, they have a bus and they take them all the sports on a Saturday and, and Sunday. And I just said, that's brilliant. Like when I was when I was a kid, I used to catch so many buses to go to different sports stuff. And not because your parents are not on board, is they're so busy trying to, trying to, trying to create everything for you. Um, but if you have that, like imagine if you had like, if you had a program like that in Melbourne where, where, where so many kids, all they need to do is just be ready, get picked up, taken to, to sports that they like and enjoy. I think there'll be a lot of um, different trouble and not just sport as well. Like there's arts and crafts and there's, mm-hmm. there's different things that they interest them. Uh, but the opportunity is number one. Cause I think many of them, although there might be an opportunity, there's no access, accessibility to get there. 
and and there's no like mentors to help them and realize like okay i think that's the glue it's the mentor and it's that person like you know in your experience peter how you had the person who was able to recognize your potential and then just give you that nudge by being willing to do that one step that connected you to the I think that's what seems to be missing but potentially you you disagree because from my observations a lot of minority communities cultural communities are engaging in sport potentially it's that they're doing it too late like because I know that there's this big theme around starting early so that you can get into like professional um, sport um, but I'm I'm driving around and seeing like you know African kids on the soccer field like on Saturdays and Sundays and they're playing competitively but what's that is it that there aren't people there kind of picking up their potential and pushing them across pushing them forward into new spaces would you say or would you say that yeah they're not being ushered into the sport early enough like I think for me, definitely having a mentor there, um, it helped someone just to tell me like, um, you know, through the losses and wins, like just at all costs, enjoy what you're doing and, and um, just stay consistent. Consistency makes a difference. Um, Cause like as kids, you don't really understand, like if something doesn't work too early and no one's pushing you, mm-hmm. you tend just to go the opposite, especially now with, with like all your friends doing different things, you tend to follow your friends more than your passions. Um, which is a lot harder to do if someone's not there helping you. And I think for migrants, a lot of parents will push you towards education, but it's really hard to push you towards those sports and, and your goals and stuff. So that's that's a little bit different. Yeah, there are lots of young people, though, that aspire to play for the NBA or aspire to, to do mm. something extraordinary and, and be recognised and, and make it to the top of the field. Um but then that's not ne- necessarily the the future for every young person that chooses to participate mm-hmm. in sport. And in many times in between the individual and that sort of a goal are organisation structures or institutions, if you like, that are Soccer Australia or athlete, mm-hmm. Athletics Australia or whatever it might be. That Do you think those organisations, and I mean in generalities, I don't want to talk to any group in particular, but do you think those organisations understand the role they can play in simply fostering or mentoring or um, being as inclusive as possible for everybody rather than simply trying to, to talent spot mm. and, and only talk to those individuals? I, I think to an extent, but it's got to be, and I say that because it's got to be more than just a job title, it's got to be a passion. Like, of course, there's there's inclusion and there's there's programs there, but you don't want just programs, you want people passionate enough like you don't want to put a kid on a program for a year and then tell them it's it's over next year. Yeah. You want to, you want to make sure that because you can't you can't build anything in a few months to a year. You got to make sure they're there for you got to invest in them a, a very long time. Consistency makes a big difference. Yeah. And as you said before, like I mean, it's not not everyone's going to make it to the top. So that's why I speak about balance in the middle is perfect because mm-hmm. um, those kids like I guess if sport doesn't work. Um, you're not just going to play sports 24-7. You've got to make sure um, you do other things as well, whether it's creativity, whether it's education, whether whether you go and work and do something else like workshops and stuff like that. Uh, because there's also, it's not like a plan B, but you just got to keep that balance around. But I think consistency and investing in a long term, not short term. Yeah. Like I think those organisations do that, but you got to be long term. Peter, Peter, you're an extraordinary communicator as well as an extraordinary runner. Was the idea of becoming a public speaker in any way a scary endeavour for you? Was it something that did take you out of your comfort zone or is it just a, just come naturally? 
No, I'm actually quite introverted. And um, <laughs> I mean, I never wanted to public speak, but I always wanted to make a difference and, and I knew I could. So early on, when I first graduated school, I used to go up to a place called um, Leonora, which is about an hour flight in from Perth. And it's about like an hour drive from Kalgoorlie and it's got a lot of indigenous communities. And I used to go up there sometimes and it didn't feel like public speaking because it just we're not, I'm not writing a speech and reading it. We're just having general conversations. Like right now, like um, it's just conversations and you spend time with them and, and you get good at it. And then you realize it's not really public speaking. You're just sharing and exchanging stories and having conversations with people. And, and I think that's what I do. It's not, I don't do public speaking. I just have conversations and, and we exchange stories. And, and in that it's so powerful. I think when you do that, because um, like everything people see, I guess on TV and stuff like that, it shows you like, like many people didn't understand that Tokyo was my second Olympics because there was a success in Rio. But when you get access to someone and you can ask them questions and, and you have those conversations and then understand like, oh, you've been to Rio, you've been to other teams and you didn't succeed. And it's like, oh, like, okay, I don't have to give up if I don't yeah. make it. I don't have to give up if I don't get into the course I want to first time. There's other way around it. I just got to keep finding ways around it or something like that. So so what you seem to be suggesting is one that it's it's your it's the frame of reference you create for yourself that that failure is okay within a frame of reference about the world and and actual fact how we all make our ways through the world we're all failing and and succeeding in different things in different ways mm. but also that whatever you're confronted with you can change the frame of reference so that it actually works in your favor. The, the idea of being able to change the idea of public speaking to being a conversation helped to decide how you were going to actually approach that mm. opportunity um, and, yeah. and remove some of the fears that you might have had otherwise. Yeah, and at the same time, I still used to, I still used to get nervous like um, doing any speeches and stuff like that. But like, I don't get nervous anymore. But <laughs> if you think about it, like that was over 10 years ago, I did my first stuff. So over years, of course, you're not going to get nervous. I mean, uh, that was 10 years I started athletics before coming forth at the Olympic Games. I mean, it's like, why don't you get nervous? Well, if you ask me about the first Olympics, I was so nervous. I woke up at four in the morning. I couldn't get back to sleep yeah. until until my race. Um, and then in, like fast forward later to Tokyo, which is five years later or whatever it was, and man, I had to put an alarm to wake up. Like, I wasn't worried about anything, you know? Um, so, so it's a different, different thing. It's the same as speaking. Like, uh, you just have to, like, nothing, everything takes work, everything takes experience. Um, the more you do it, it's yeah. like, it's just that. So, Peter, Peter, tell us what is it like to run in, in an Olympics? What's it like to run 800 metres in an Olympic <laughs> Games? What, what's, um, what's the sort of feelings that go through you? And I imagine that there's all different stages as you go through it. But, but t- tell us something. Let, let us um, get some idea of that. Because that, that elbow emotion. bumping that happens, <laughs> that elbow bumping that happens when you guys have to claim your places. Oh, it looks <laughs> rough. <laughs> it's, um, it's, it's super, it's scary. And then it's like, it's unpredictable. Um, but it's also so exciting. And like, and like you just... Because you realize you worked four years, but it could be done yeah. in like under two minutes. In fact, it's the quicker you get off the track, the more successful you are. Like you want to get <laughs> off the track and get off as, as fast as possible. <laughs> yeah, it's amazing. Like, <laughs> and would you? Like, yeah, sorry, keep going. You create so, so much stress, but um, I think what's really what's really cool is the stories you kind of 
like I remember my first Olympics, I loved analyzing people and I love analyzing different cultures because I come from two different cultures and I, and I grew up in Australia and, and like I went to school with so many people from different cultures, like a lot of Ethiopians, a lot of um, Indians and stuff like that. So when I went to the Olympics and I was like, I was so nervous and I was just analyzing like every single culture. So I went to the track. Uh, one day I went to the track to do a warm up and I remember I did not even warm up. Like I was just watching everyone. And I looked to one side and I see like, I saw the Jamaicans and I saw Usain Bolt and they had music blasting. They're oh, like, wow. just, yeah, wow. the Olympics did not even start and they look like they've already won the Olympics. I'm like, I want to be there. <laughs> they had, they had and then I looked to my other side and I saw the Kenyans and I'm like, I do not want to be like them. Those guys look like they've already lost the Olympics. They look so shy and nervous. They look so small. And they're little I know. They're going to be my worst nightmare. Yeah. <laughs> because, um, you know, what you realize is everyone has their different cultures and, and different things. Like if they look, if that's just, that's just their culture. But when they get on the track, they're different. Like you can't beat these guys. And you realize the Kenyans dominated the distance. Yeah. The Jamaicans dominated. So did the Australians dominate the swimming and whatnot. Everyone has different personalities. And I was trying to be like the Jamaicans. Like, well, and I realized at the end, I was like, Pete, like, you've worked for four years to get to the Olympics. I only realized the most important thing is not to try to copy anyone else, it's to be yourself. Like, that's that's crazy. And at the first Olympics, I realized, like, I don't need to copy the Jamaicans. I don't need to copy these guys. I just need to be confident in myself. And that's going to take me a long way because all those people, they just seem like they're just, they're not trying. They're just being themselves. And when you're trying too hard to be like someone else, it's exhausting. It takes so much energy. Mm. It takes so much mental energy away. And when you get to the track, you just freeze Mm. or or any scenario. So like, if you can just be yourself, you're so relaxed and I'm, and I think that's cool. And then, you know, fast forward four years later, I'm at the Olympics again. And I was just calm. Like, I remember uh, breaking the Australian record in the first first round. I was just like, I was just like, it is what it is. Like, um, you know, uh, my, my mentality was like, um, it's simple, but it's like the same track. It's literally the same distance that I ran from Perth from the first day I ran it to like running all those years. The distance has not changed. The track maybe changes but still 400 meters so you're still doing two laps around it which equals 800 meters and the only thing is is how much you um give to it you're like oh like you're investing the best in the world or whatnot but it doesn't matter you're like you're against yourself and yeah and you just gotta focus on yourself and and that was my mentality in tokyo like i'm just running the same distance it's just in a different country mm-hmm. and i just have to be in japan yeah, no, I think that I think that's a wonderful piece of advice and a wonderful way to sort of come to the conclusion of this podcast. The the only last thing I would ask, and Lydia might have an additional question as well, but the last thing I would ask is, what advice would you give to young people? What advice do you give to the young people that you're um, mentoring at the Youth Activating Youth as well? How do you, what what are the words that they might want to have resonating in their heads from when they listen to you? Depends on the ages, but in in a the first one is i think it's so important for all of us is is defining your values or your goals and if you can literally make decisions based on those you go a long way um i think that's super important and number two is man just be yourself like as i said before that takes less effort yeah. and it draws people to you if you can be yourself if like if i was trying to be someone else like my whole Sudanese culture would not come and i think that's what Australia fell in love with is like, well, how many people in Peter's house? That's ridiculous. Like how many families does he have? It was like, man, there was that much family, believe it or not, if not more, 
during Rio, but there wasn't any success. There wasn't cameras around it. Like, it's like, why aren't you nervous? And, and are you, are you feeling any pressure? I'm like, no, because like, this is what I grew up with. Like we, we have family members for like my niece's birthday, like that they all rock up because that's our culture. Um, and then I guess the third one, what else would I have to tell someone? Is yeah, you got to do the work. You can't. You yeah, can't a healthy do the work. dose of realism, great for advice. You got to you got to do the work. Like yeah. I've I've done the work. Um, whatever that's in in sports, whatever that's in speaking, like I've like the timeline. You, no one would know other than myself and the people closest to me. But if you have a conversation with someone that you want to be like, ask them about the timeline, not about. Like, don't ask me about Tokyo. Ask me about, like, the journey to Tokyo. Because mm-hmm. that's where you find the key factors. Um, in a, you can't just see me in Tokyo and say, I want to be like him. You've got to see, like, how did you get there? What did you go through? And then you decide whether you want to be like him or not. I think that's great. Amazing. If I were to ask you another question, we would start a whole new conversation. <laughs> I think this sort of brings us to the end. And there are clearly, like, so many takeaways from this discussion today. Um, there are key words that are like floating around my mind. I'm thinking about balance, curiosity, hard work, self-awareness, confidence, values, and yeah, I've learned I've learned a lot. Thank you so much, Peter, for Absolutely. for your time. We know you're here, there, everywhere, but today <laughs> you were with us, and we appreciate <laughs> it. <laughs> um, yeah, and for everyone tuning in, this is the Voices of Australia podcast, and we'll see you on the next episode. Absolutely, thank you very, very mm-hmm. much. Thanks, Peter. Thanks, Thanks Peter. Peter. Appreciate it. Thank you, guys. See ya. Bye. Bye. This podcast was brought to you by the Scanlon Foundation Research Institute. This podcast is produced by Faisal Farah with sound design and mixing by John Bigelow. Original music is by Official Steno. You can find all our publications on our website at scanlaninstitute.org.au. Please subscribe to be the first to receive our next fortnightly edition. <laughs>